Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. ICRT's roundup of the top news stories from around Taiwan. Today we'll be covering the last seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio today is Gavin Phipps, also of ICRT News. Hello, Gavin. Hello. It's trying to stay warm in this frigid frigid climate we found ourselves in. 15 degrees. Yeah. Move to Asia, Gavin. It's hot. <laughs> They're having a laugh, aren't they, really? Chipper is always Gavin Phipps right there. Also with us in studio is Ross Feingold of DC International Advisory. Hello, Ross. Good evening. And by phone all the way from Taichung, we've got ICRT Central Taiwan correspondent Donovan Smith. Donovan, what's the weather like down there? Uh, it's a little nippy. A little nippy. All right. Yes. A little nippy down there as well. All right, well, as far as topics go on the show today, we've got some military issues uh, sort our way through. The U.S. Congress is paving the way for increased cooperation between the U.S. and Taiwan militaries. Meanwhile, we're getting mixed signals about the end of constri- conscription in Taiwan, with uh, Defense Minister Feng Shuquan saying it will end next year. But his spokesman saying, eh, we're going to see how those recruitment numbers are looking. Uh, we also had a massive rally in support of legalizing gay marriage that took place last weekend. We'll uh, take a look at that as well. And what were the top Google searches made in Taiwan this year? The answer will definitely not surprise you. It shouldn't anyway, if you've been paying any attention to the show. Uh, so here, here, here's what you can do. You make your guess now for what the top search in Google in Taiwan was this year. We'll tell you what the actual answer was at the end of the show. You can see if you're right. If you were... I guess you pat yourself on the back. That's all you get from that. All uh, right. Uh, so pretty straightforward show this week. Uh, lots of stories that uh, we've been following for a while. No real curveballs. Um, except, uh, I think I'm forgetting something. Oh, yeah. There's this. I fully understand the one China policy, but I don't know why we have to be bound by one China policy. All right. And that is Donald Trump in his interview broadcast by Fox News over the weekend. Uh, calling into question the United States' one-China policy. Uh, and he went on to say this. I don't know why we have to be bound by a one-China policy unless we make a deal with China, having to do with other things, including trade. I mean, look, we're being hurt very badly by China with devaluation, with uh, taxing us heavy at the borders when we don't tax them, with building a massive fortress in the middle of the South China Sea, which they shouldn't be doing, and... Frankly, with not helping us at all with North Korea. You have North Korea, you have nuclear weapons, and China could solve that problem, and they're not helping us at all. Of course, uh, these latest comments follow on the heels of the call, which we covered last week. Uh, many people believe uh, these comments over the weekend are yet another break in the status quo as far as U.S. policy on China and Taiwan uh, goes. Uh, and and uh, we've heard a lot of hue and cry over the last couple of weeks about this. Uh, well, uh, let's talk about what that one China policy means, because, uh, uh, of course, a lot of uh, people have been trying to suss out exactly what this changes and what it doesn't change. Uh, the one China policy is kind of the awkward diplomatic framework that allows the U.S. to continue diplomatic relations with China while at the same time carrying out unofficial exchanges with Taiwan. Uh, The main points to remember here is that the U.S. does not recognize sovereignty of Taiwan over Taiwan. It also does not recognize Chinese sovereignty over Taiwan. It sees the matter as unresolved. So 
Uh, that's the nice wonky place that we find ourselves in right now. Uh, Gavin, uh, how has uh, China been reacting over the last uh, week or so to the latest statements from Donald Trump? It hasn't liked it at all. But of course, we have to be careful when we talk about the one China policy and we can't get confused with the one China principle. Of course, because China has its one China principle, while the United States has a one China policy. The principle, of course, being that China owns all, and the policy being that America admits that China exists in the PRC, but it also admits that Taiwan exists as the Republic of China. So the policy principle issue came up. Mm-hmm. With China going, it stamped its feet. China stamped its feet and said, hey, you can't do this. If you do this, you risk war. You risk war? Well, they did sort of come out a bit heavy-handedly and say things along those lines. And, of course, it was also said by another U.S. State Department official that if they alter the status quo, shall we call it, it could lead to China taking sort of action against Taiwan. And, of course, another U.S. official came out this week and warned Taiwan that it needs to up its defence spending because China, of course, has not renounced its use of force against the island and it's building up its military. And this U.S. official said China is building up its military modernization program with the aim of retaking Taiwan. And we also saw some uh, pictures of some of those installations in the South China Sea. Those are being built up as well, apparently. Well, that was a big surprise, wasn't it? I don't don't know who that was. I don't know. I have no idea who that surprised. But I also read another headline this week that said China has increased the number of um, short-range missiles aimed at Taiwan. Which, of course, is also not a surprise, because one must remember these missiles are not in silos. They are mobile missile systems. So even if they take them away, they can just drive them back again and point them at Taiwan, can't they? Simple as that. Well, uh, we should also point out it wasn't just a war of words over the past week. It was also a... Well, there were planes in the air as well. This is another thing that's... Uh, it's all been tied in together, but they actually these flights along... out they, These Chinese aircraft flew close to Taiwan, not going in Taiwan's air defence identification zone. But this actually started... Started in the end of November, shortly after the U.S. election. Mm-hmm. Beijing has described these flights by Chinese aircraft as routine exercises. But I believe I've also heard them described as the first time that uh, route, uh, Chinese military aircraft have completely circled Taiwan. They circled Taiwan. They went from north. They went through the east. They went through the south, and they went up the west back home. Mm-hmm. And all before dinner. All right. Simple as that. Uh, uh, mission accomplished, I suppose. Well, for them, they landed okay, and I presume they sat down and had a big old dinner. Yep. There we go. All right. We can only speculate about that last point, but it sounds credible. It sounds fairly credible. Of course, last week on the show, we had on former AIT head Bill Stanton, and he was telling us uh, why he thought a lot of the hue and cry over the call was somewhat overblown. Uh, he also said uh, a lot of the diplomatic conventions that have kind of uh, accrued uh, concerning China and Taiwan Uh, Well, he says that there's a lot of room for adjustment as far as the diplomatic protocol there goes. So uh, I thought this week it might be a good idea to check in with uh, how folks in D.C. currently feel about all this. Uh, And so I did just that. I recently spoke with David Ahn. He is a senior research fellow at the recently established Global Taiwan Institute to get the view from D.C. on all this. David Ons, thanks so much for speaking with us today. Happy to be here. So your group does a whole bunch of different kinds of research related to Taiwan. And for the most part, you know, there isn't like an institutional uh, commitment, policy commitment that uh, Global Taiwan Institute takes. But one thing that I do know that you guys are committed to uh, is closer U.S.-Taiwan ties. So 
just yeah. starting out, let's kind of look at the past two two weeks or so of events through that lens. Uh, obviously, there's been a lot of hue and cry about what exactly uh, the phone call and then the comments on the One China policy have meant. But just looking at this from the lens of what does this mean for U.S.-Taiwan ties, uh, on balance, would you see this as positive uh, or maybe a little bit more complicated than that? Yes. Uh, generally, with what we've seen uh, with Trump statements uh, and uh, all the activity in the past two weeks, generally, yes, it is uh, moving in a direction that's good for U.S.-Taiwan relations. Uh, however, the question is, you know, China's reacting to a lot of this, uh, demarching the U.S. State Department and uh, kind of making public statements. So some concern there is uh, when China weighs in, uh, is it going to be uh, creating a, a more challenging situation? What are the sorts of scenarios that uh, you're most concerned about? Well, uh, for China right now, publicly, especially to the Trump Thai phone call, on one hand, uh, China publicly plays it down. Uh, saying, oh, you know, the first reaction was uh, that is kind of like um, an annoying situation, uh, but then didn't really uh, go to um, kind of wasn't so didn't react too harshly uh, until uh, it, it had a government demarche against the U.S. government through official channels. Uh, so at the moment, it's it's basically a verbal type uh, government to government or media reaction so far. Uh, question is, uh, especially with uh, China's aerial training missions uh, coinciding around this time, flying uh, military aircraft around Taiwan, uh, is there a correlation with what's what we're seeing with Taiwan, with Taiwan's President Tsai's uh, kind of current um, way of working with the U.S. and kind of drawing more distance away from China? Uh, are these things related, and then how, where would this lead? Hmm. Uh, let's kind of break up, you know, the call. And uh, the comments that we saw over the weekend, um, when we discussed this on our show last week, uh, we had on uh, Bill Stanton, who is a former AIT head, and uh, he was making this case very strongly that, uh, you know, there's there's some room for flexibility in the U.S.'s uh, diplomatic stance, uh, and also that, you know, uh, a lot of the people advising the Trump transition team are very pro-Taiwan, and so that we need to kind of take that, the one call, in the context of what is likely uh, a broader effort to step up U.S. commitments to Taiwan. Uh, so that's that's the call, but then, you know, we see these comments seemingly made very much off the cuff, uh, during this interview, and and there, I don't. It's not quite as clear that there is, you know, a thoughtful group of people that are contributing to the words and the way that Donald Trump is phrasing this. So, in your mind, would you make a a, a distinction? Uh, does that interview change anything uh, for you? For this interview, where, where Trump said, you know, quote unquote, he said, "I don't know why we have to be bound by by one China policy unless we make a deal with China, having to do with other things, including trade." So on one hand, it seems like for people in Taiwan who felt like Taiwan was becoming too politically and economically dependent on the PRC, especially those students who protested in the legislative UN two years ago, this seems like a welcome statement that the U.S. It seems like the U.S. is more willing to uh, kind of be flexible on the one China policy. Uh, however, this, this statement is softened by the fact that he's not officially president yet. You know, uh, Donald Trump currently is president-elect not yet inaugurated as the current president. So what's going to happen is that he's going to make a statement, he's going to act, China's going to react, and then now China's, uh, Trump is going to have a, t- a few new data points on polit- geopolitical action and reaction, and then he's going to be able to carefully consider his official policy for later when his administration officially begins. So basically uh, what I'm saying here is that uh, this whole situation is softened uh, 
by the fact that he's not officially president. Mm. Now, as 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 somebody, uh, I know that uh, Global Taiwan Institute has uh, you know a broad network of people that are interested in Taiwan affairs uh, all throughout the U.S. And uh, as somebody who's kind of hooked into that, is uh, you know knows what people are thinking over there. How would you characterize uh, the way that uh, heritage Taiwanese people are are reacting to all of this? Uh, are are folks over there generally in favor of uh, the events of the last two weeks? Um, I think it's it's mixed because uh, right now, on one hand, you see that there could be a welcome uh, flexibility to one China, but then uh, it's also mixed because uh, it's hard to say whether or not uh, this is going to be like he said. He said, you know, do we have a deal with China? So uh, there's a there's a New York Times article titled Taiwan is both exhilarated and unnerved by Trump's China remarks. So so far, it's a bit mixed. On one hand, it uh, looks like you know, Trump is reaching out with a Trump-Tai phone call and talking about one-China policy. On the other hand, about uh, making a deal with China about Taiwan. Uh, that seems a little concerning. So even folks that are fairly committed to U.S.-Taiwan ties, a lot of them just don't know what to make of this. Yes, yeah, yeah, so on one hand, it is mixed. I mean, his statement about one-China is very uh, quite mixed right now. Um, and we also see China's uh, behavior, you know, China's aerial training missions flying circles around Taiwan. So there's this whole, uh, both the... the rhetoric, the dialogue, as well as the military activity that we're seeing, um, heightened uh, China's uh, military aircraft presence, even around uh, Japan as well. So there's this, there's this situation going on where there's a shift in the uh, position of the Tide administration compared to the previous Ma administration, and that affecting cross-rate relations and the question of um, how Trump's going to work through all of this. All right. Once again, we were listening there to the comments of David On, who is a senior research fellow at the Global Taiwan Institute. Donovan, let's toss things over to you. Uh, what are your thoughts on all this? We haven't heard that. Uh, last two weeks worth of uh, events coming out of uh, Trump land. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, I, I think what's, what's, what's interesting about Trump is he consistently he has a few strategies for dealing with what he perceives as opponents. Um, and he, he characteristically, he launches sort of asymmetrical attacks at people. He figures out what their weak point is or what, what rules or mental constructs constrain somebody and grabs that cage and rattles it. He figures out what the cage is that, 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 that's, that their opponent has and just grabs it, rattles it, rattles it, rattles it, rattles it and leaves them really kind of disoriented and, and not really sure what to do. And I think that's why I picked the one China policy, because it's something that China has wrapped so much into, and it's such an obvious fiction. Okay, so that's uh, perhaps the strategy that we can expect from Trump going forward. What do you think that that means for Taiwan? Well, I mean, now, what I find really interesting is that, is that I think that uh, Tai. Uh, yeah, Taiwan has been working behind the scenes. You'll notice that uh, with, you know, for example, with Dole, uh, Bob Dole was hired as consultant. Tom Daschle on the Democratic side, and another a prominent Democrat whose name escapes me at this minute, um, is that the the payment started uh, in May, May to October was publicly disclosed, which means that she's basically as soon as she came into office, she ramped up the amount of lobbying in the U.S. 
And if you remember the, the, the aviation conference, the ICAO, uh, when China blocked Taiwan's participation, she sent the delegation anyway. Um, and they liaised with uh, 40 some odd countries, I believe, uh, sort of behind the scenes. And so I think that Trump's strat- I'm sorry, Thai's strategy has been to build sympathy uh, for Taiwan and also to make sure that people see Taiwan as being active, a participant in the international community, and highlight the, the absurdity of Taiwan's situation being marginalized by China and how China is essentially thuggishly uh, pushing away a, you know, a, an active, uh, sincere uh, participant in the community and you know, international community and, a, and an active democracy. So, you know, and so her, to, to push that forward and to try and get more recognition and space for Taiwan to operate internationally, it was a brilliant move on her part to try and get to try and get through to you know have a phone call with the president-elect of the United States, because of course that sets a precedent that could allow for other countries to try and uh, you know and to reach out and have higher-level communications with Taiwan. I mean, obviously the Dalai Lama is welcome and capitals all over the world, yet Taiwan can't, you know, can't get their own citizens to walk in the door at the UN with, with you know, because the passport's not recognized, um, you know, even as a tourist, I believe. So, but what she's done with, with Trump is, I think she may have unleashed a little bit more than she bargained for with, you know, I don't think she had any clue that he was going to start questioning openly the uh, one China policy, and then she kind of openly made it clear, uh, he made it clear that, you know, this was going to be a bargaining chip in dealing with uh, trade deals and other issues with North Korea and so forth. <clears throat> you know, is, this was all on, you know, he's putting the one China uh, policy on the table as a negotiating tactic, which I think is a little scary from our perspective here in Taiwan, because we don't really know where that's going to go. All right. So uh, picking up on a point that you just made uh, a second ago, let's actually toss things over to Ross, because uh, Ross, every time we uh, introduce you as Ross Feingold of D.C. International Advisory. But uh, just to clarify for our listeners that uh, D.C. International Advisory uh, is actually headed uh, by Stephen Yates, who we discussed on the show last week as uh, being an advisor to the transition team for uh, uh, Donald Trump. Uh, and in addition to that, uh, Mr. Yates was in Taiwan last week, as we reported. And in addition to that, uh, he's somebody with uh, very deep ties to Taiwan. I mean, if, if you listen to him talk, he's really not just talking from a strategic uh, vantage point when he discusses Taiwan. He's really, you know, he has a depth of uh, experience and a depth of ties uh, to Taiwan as a whole. Uh, so you're somebody that is in the orbit of uh, the various advisors that are advising Trump on his China policy and on his Taiwan policy. Uh, we heard there Donovan bring up uh, Bob Dole and his potential connection to the call last week uh, and uh, some other ways that uh, we think that that call came about. What's your perspective on that? Well, the Taiwan government, whether it's uh, the current DPP government, previous KMT governments, or you know, going back decades um, before Taiwan democratized, uh, that the fact that they engage lobbyists and public relations firms in Washington, D.C. to uh, conduct uh, publicity and or 
interaction with U.S. congressmen or executive branch agencies like the White House, State Department, Commerce Department, etc. None of this is a surprise. Uh, and Taiwan, as with other countries around the world that have significant needs and, and issues uh, in Washington, D.C., spends a lot of money on this. So it, it worked out well on this occasion that their lobbyists were uh, able to facilitate high-level contact with an incoming presidential administration. And frankly, that'll continue. Uh, right Next year, uh, when Trump takes office, Taiwan will continue to engage lobbyists. And as you mentioned, some of them are Democrats and some of them are, are Republicans. And, and that's just very normal operating procedure for Taiwan and, and many other foreign governments. So, as far as the characterization, though, goes of because uh, I, I think that the way that it's been portrayed in uh, reports from the New York Times and elsewhere uh, is that the the lobbying effort over the last year has been orchestrated uh, specifically uh, with some kind of big play in mind and that Tsai Ing-wen has been uh, really deliberately moving it forward in a way that it, it hasn't been before. Uh, would you say that that's does does that match what you saw? Well, not not entirely, because uh, I, I don't think Taiwan has significantly increased the amounts it spends on lobbying in Washington, D.C. I mean, we'd have to look at historical data um, versus recent data and, and filing reports, et cetera. But uh, it, it's probably unlikely that there's been significant change because they already spend a lot of money, uh, millions of dollars a year on this. So the, uh, and, and they would have known, uh, it's no, no surprise, of course, that there was a presidential campaign this year in the United States and there'd be a new president because the incumbent was not running for re-election. Uh, and uh, another way to look at this, though, is frankly the expectation in, in by many in the Taiwan government, and, and we know this based on some of their statements, uh, very similar to people in the United States and around the world, was actually that Clinton would win and, and we would not be uh, talking about President-elect Donald Trump's one China policy policy or Taiwan policies. So if anything, the events of the last few weeks uh, turned out to be a surprise to the Taiwan government, as it was a surprise to many other people that President-elect Trump won the election. And uh, it actually turns out, as you know, the media has reported, again, this is no secret, Senator Dole, who who has been doing lobbying for Taiwan for years. This is not new that his firm was engaged simply in the aftermath of Trump's election. And it turned out he, he had a, a former staff person who worked for him for many years who's working in a very senior position in the Trump campaign and now the Trump transition office. So facilitating the call might have been very uh, easy to do, actually. Uh, so I, I would not read too much into how the call came about, who arranged it, uh, the the thing we really need to be moving the conversation towards is where do we go from here in the aftermath of the call? How do Taiwan-U.S. relations change? How do U.S.-China relations change? And for the those of us who live here in Taiwan, how do Taiwan-China relations change in, in the coming weeks and months? Uh, if we kind of separate these two things from the call and then uh, perhaps to... Uh, the, the the comments that uh, Mr. Trump made uh, in Fox News recently with regards to the one China policy, uh, I think for the call here, here, here's my read on it. And I want you to correct me if you think I'm way off base here. My read on it is the call was the product of a lot of people uh, with a commitment to Taiwan kind of working behind the scenes, uh, working out exactly how to approach this over a period of some time. His comments uh, in this Fox News interview seem to be fairly impromptu. Uh, it does, does not necessarily seem like something that was uh, wording that was planned out by his advisors uh, for him to use. Uh, it seems a little bit off the cuff. 
And so it it seems like if that's the case, then there might be some tension between the thoughtful plotting forward of formulating a, a foreign policy and a leader that is uh, going on air and shooting from the hip to some extent. Uh, am I way off base in that read of the situation? It's fairly accurate. Uh, one point of speculation following the call was how knowledgeable Donald Trump is about the U.S. past policies or current policies towards Taiwan and China. Well, he said that he only knew about the call an hour in advance, and I might believe him on that. That may be true. However, I I could say with certainty that um, during the course of the election campaign and certainly after he won the election, that as with many other significant foreign policy issues that he will have to deal with as president, he's received extensive uh, briefing and has participated in extensive discussions with uh, the people in the transition team and outside advisors about China policy. So even if he only knew about the call one hour in advance, he certainly knew the implications of the call, the potential reactions from China. Again, this, this was discussed with him uh, between Mr. Trump and his aides. So uh, accusations that he was doing the call or taking the call without extensive briefing or knowledge of the implications is completely inaccurate. Um, so, so again, that, that kind of brings us back to, you know, where do we go from here? And, and to answer your question, Keith, um, you know, they're still formulating the policies, right? Um, I mean, a lot of these policies will not be set uh, until not, not just January 20th when they take office, but for months later, uh, the whole triangular relationship between U.S., China, Taiwan, whether it's trade or military or, or other aspects of the relationships. Um, so to say that he wasn't uh, you know, giving a message when he did the Fox News interview consistent with what his aides have been telling him, that that might be the case, but we also have to keep in mind that, that a significant element here is they, they've not necessarily formulated what the go-forward policies will be. And, and that shouldn't be ta- taken to mean a criticism of Trump. Now, we know Trump has his style, and so maybe there is an element of impromptu remarks to what he says. But uh, we should also, again, keep in mind that the, the people who are going to be staffing significant positions have not all been selected yet. We've, we've re- only recently had a State Department secretary nominated in the last few days, one of the last significant cabinet appointments to be made. So the, the, there is an element of work in progress on what the ultimate policies will be. And, and I think that was reflected in the remarks that he made on Fox News. Mm. But I mean, obviously, the, obviously the, phone call, well, we, the phone call, we've just questioned how the phone call came about. But obviously, I, I think there was questions in Taipei about how the government here handled it, of course, releasing a photograph of Tsai at a desk with a telephone box in front of her. Made a big splashy thing. Tsai talks to Trump on telephone. Becomes first ROC head of state to do so in many, 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 many years. And then, of course, the curveball came when Trump criticised the One China policy. And since then, the government has gone pretty much quiet on this. Well, uh, it's reasonable to ask how advisable it was to maximize the public relations value domestically here in Taiwan. But that's a strategic decision that um, the Taiwan government made, and uh, we can't undo it now. Uh, And uh, there's a significant element of of, um, making people in Taiwan feel proud of their country and proud to be Taiwanese and to know that their president can speak to the president of the United States. And we, we should be reluctant to criticize that because um, that that's just 
good for a sense of identity and, and, and in a way has nothing to do with does one support the KMT or the DPP? You know, did, did one vote for Tsai or not vote for Tsai? Uh, Taiwanese should be proud that their president gets to talk with the president of the United States and potentially other foreign leaders. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a fair question to ask how much should they be, should the government be seeking public relations value and, and how much should they uh, try and just simply keep it at sure we talk to the president and as as President Trump said we're a good customer for weapons so uh, we certainly expect to be treated uh, with with respect and dignity and that that's why we had the call. Hmm. Uh, Donovan, anything that you want to add to all this? I think that's pretty accurate. Uh, I do think it. it uh, Thai, you know, I think Thai's strategy is to maximize uh, Taiwan's role in, internationally, and I think that you know Ross is absolutely correct. That that is something that will bring more pride and identity to to, to Taiwanese as Taiwanese. All right, so we've covered now uh, the view from D.C., uh, the view here from Taipei and Taichung. So we're covering a lot of bases. Uh, I thought that it would be good, though, to get a perspective uh, that we haven't heard from before, uh, the view from Beijing. And so to get that, I spoke to earlier this week Chris Bodine. He is the acting news editor for Greater China for the Associated Press. He's also someone who's reported for a number of years uh, right here in Taiwan. So I thought he would be uh, the perfect guy to provide sort of a balanced perspective between Beijing and uh, Taiwan. Uh, and so in our conversation, I started out by asking uh, from his vantage point, uh, what does he expect the news over the last two weeks to add up to? Well, Beijing's response has been pretty measured so far. I, I don't think they want to commit to any uh, hard and fixed position, and at least until Trump takes office and gets his uh, foreign policy establishment all lined up and they can figure who they're dealing with. After the phone call with Tsai Ing-wen, they, uh, they basically tried to shift the blame onto the Taiwan side, saying that it was a petty maneuver by, by Taiwan to try to gain some sort of political points. Um, so I, the, the, the sense here is it's sort of like in stasis while they wait to see really what, what, what really more sort of fixed position Trump will be taking. Um, at the same time, I mean, there are, there are a range of, of, of possibilities then. Some, some are potentially quite destabilizing. You know, Trump has been talking about China's uh, alleged role as a, as a cheater in international trade. He's mentioned the uh, developments in the South China Sea. And um, that could, uh, could really uh, prompt a, a, a harder position from Beijing if they decide that that, that is what they're going to have to be dealing with. I will also add that, that in talking to scholars and, and people in the foreign policy establishment here in, in Beijing, they, uh, they seem to have undergone a, a bit of a shift in their thinking. Originally, Trump's uh, election was considered uh, a, a good thing. Uh, essentially, it was preferable to, uh, to, to Hillary Clinton uh, being elected. Uh, there was long-standing sort of uh, animosity between Clinton and Beijing. Uh, particularly over her, uh, her what, what, what Beijing perceives as her authorship of, or, or her stewardship of the uh, pivot to Asia. And so Beijing was thinking that, that uh, Hillary Clinton would, would take a harder line and that uh, Trump at least offered the possibility that there, there might be some more uh, room to maneuver. And um, that, that position we've now seen shifted somewhat where they're taking a little more... Uh, 
sort of jaded or, or more hard-edged kind of view on, on the Trump administration and, uh, and at least uh, considering the possibility that he will, uh, he will be a tougher character to deal with than they had uh, originally uh, uh, imagined. Hmm. Uh, picking up on that point that you're getting to right there, you know, the Beijing trying to suss out exactly who the president-elect is. I mean, I think that a lot of policy watchers here in Taiwan uh, are quick to say that uh, the phone call really had a lot more to do um, with a lot of pro-Taiwan advisors on Trump's transition team that I have a long history of wanting to support Taiwan, wanting closer U.S.-Taiwan ties, and that in the long run, they're really going to be the ones determining uh, the China and the Taiwan policy. And so, you know, statements like what Trump had to say over the weekend, uh, really, you know, you shouldn't read too much into it. It's not going to matter. Um, but does China see it that way? I mean, is there is there a possibility that these sorts of statements will really poison the well and change the way that uh, Beijing is kind of contextualizing the U.S.'s actions in such a way that, you know, they might really see negative stuff, uh, see stuff more negatively than they might otherwise perceive it? China has traditionally sort of favored Republican presidents over Democrats. Uh, uh, Bill Clinton, early in his administration, was quite harsh on China and then softened his view and ended up being uh, being being seen uh, pretty favorably. Uh, but China has long uh, really held uh, held to this sort of consistency they they think that they get from Republicans going all the way back to uh, to the Nixon administration, really. And just a couple of weeks ago, uh, Henry Kissinger, for example, was in town and he was given a, uh, a meeting with Xi Jinping. I was present at that meeting and it seemed very warm and cordial. And this seems to embody China's hopes that uh, Republicans and, and the establishment that they, that Trump has kind of grandfathered in, I guess, people like uh, Bob Dole and the Heritage Foundation and those sort of types, that they, that they essentially know who they're dealing with. Now, you know, Trump is nothing if not unpredictable. And so we don't really know at this stage, but uh, I, I would go back to my original point that they really do feel that uh, it's it's nothing is nothing is set nothing is clear at this point. They are uh, preparing themselves if if they do need to take a tougher position. I would say that uh, South China Sea and trade policy will be kind of the the, the major factors they'll be looking at, and what sort of position Trump will take on those. I think I think at this stage they're still hoping for the best, but they are uh, definitely. Uh, preparing for uh, countermeasures if they think that their interests are going to be uh, challenged by anything that Trump does. Maybe we could kind of zero in on some of the possibilities that seem more likely than others. You were talking there a second ago about some of the ways that China might react. Let's focus on those that directly would involve Taiwan. Uh, We've heard about trade issues. We've heard about maybe more pressure on Taiwan's allies. What are the possibilities that seem the most feasible, the most reasonable uh, in the next couple of months? The the diplomatic pressure is is seen as uh, sort of the the, the card that they're kind of keeping in their pocket at at, at the moment. I'm I'm not quite sure what the restraints are. Uh, It was interesting that uh, James Song went to uh, represent Taiwan at, at APEC uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, that seemed to be sort of like a, a gesture by the uh, by the Thai administration that that they don't want to sort of you know put people out there and uh, enact uh, measures that would kind of really rub Beijing the wrong way. Um, and and ever since 
you know, Tsai took office, uh, there's always been this possibility that they will start, uh, you know, playing hardball when it comes to Taiwan, uh, Taiwan's participation in, in international organizations. And we've seen some of that uh, already happening with uh, what, with Interpol and the uh, what the Civil uh, Aviation Administration, that sort of thing, where, where Taiwan has been limited in its uh, participation in ways that, that it had in, in, in years past. But uh, they don't seem to be jumping to that one right away. Uh, the, the pressure seems to be much more subtle. Um, and it, it could just be that they don't want to spark a, uh, a, a confrontation of that, of that sort at this point. Uh, China is in a bit of an awkward position right now. The, uh, the economy is slowing significantly. Xi Jinping is still trying to get the, uh, the Communist Party apparatchiks and his people sort of in line. Uh, they're already, we're already looking ahead to next year's Party Congress. And, uh, and and what sort of tact uh, she is going to take at that point, whether he's going to try uh, to extend his term beyond the usual uh, 10 years. Um, so it could just be that they, the, they they don't have the crisis management sort of uh, capability at this point to, to deal with a, a, a big blow up with Taiwan. So that issue is still, uh, you know, remains to be, uh, to be seen how it's going to play out. I think China is happy to put Taiwan on the back burner as long as it receives those insurance assurances from the U.S. that uh, things will not change in some very drastic way. Um, but uh, the, the more immediate crises uh, or, or potential crises are, are with the U.S. They're not with Taiwan. Uh, we're talking about the South China Sea in particular. We're talking about uh, trade policy. So. Uh, Really, Taiwan's not not kind of right on the on the front burner at this point. All right, and once again, that was Chris Bodine with AP in Beijing. We are going to have to move along now. We are at the halfway point for the show. Uh, this is, you know, if this were the broadcast version of the show, this is, of course, where the commercials would get stuck. Uh, but this is, of course, the podcast version of the show. And uh, for our podcast listeners out there, I actually have a tiny little confession to make. Uh, well, uh, this week, we actually kind of overbooked the show just a little bit, have uh, more guests on than we could quite fit into our usual time slot. Uh, but we had so many good commentators that I really didn't want to sell them short. Uh, these interviews that I had with Chris Bodine and David on uh, both went on for uh, just a little bit longer than we played right here. Uh, and I wanted to give our listeners who are interested in really drilling down on this topic, uh, learning more from those perspectives, I uh, wanted to give you an opportunity to hear uh, the rest of those interviews. So if you are one of those people that just can't get enough of cross-strait politics, the view from D.C., the view from Beijing, the view from everywhere. Stay tuned to the end of the show, and we will continue with those couple of interviews. Uh, really, they do have quite a couple more interesting insights. I would listen if I were you, but, you know, I do this for a living, so take this advice as you will. Anyway, if uh, actually, if you want to skip all the way to that, that's going to be coming up at about an hour and eight minutes into the podcast. I can't believe this one's that long, but that's just kind of how it turned out. Otherwise, uh, for the rest of you folks that want to just keep on plugging through uh, the normal order of the show, uh, do stay listening. Coming up in the second half, we have a whole bunch of interesting topics, none of which 
have to do with any remarks, any statements, any bloviations from any world leaders in Taiwan, in the U.S., or otherwise. So, please do stay with us as we move into the second half of Taiwan This Week. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Munconi, joined by Gavin Phipps, Ross Feingold, and Donovan Smith. Up next, got some defense news to work our way through. Uh, as long as we're talking about U.S.-Taiwan ties, Gavin, uh, it looks like Taiwan's military is going to be working just a bit more closely with the U.S. military. Yes, the U.S. Congress passed the National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2017, to give it its full name. Um, on the 8th of December, in fact, and the bill for the first time included a section on senior military exchanges between the United States and Taiwan. Of course, the law still has to be signed into law, if you can say that, by outgoing US President Barack Obama. But under Section 1284 of the 2017 NDAA, the Secretary of Defense of the United States should carry out a program of exchanges of senior military officers and senior officials between the United States and Taiwan designed to improve military-to-military relations between the two sides. Under the bill, to get to its nitty-gritty, the term senior military officer refers to a general or flag officer of the armed forces on active duty, while the term senior official refers to a civilian official of the Department of Defence at the level of Assistant Secretary of Defence or above. This means that if the bill is signed into law, which it likely will be, Pentagon officials higher than the level of Assistant Defence Secretary will be allowed to visit Taiwan. Of course, the US Congress has attempted to include similar provisions in the annual budget bill in the past, but the Obama administration repeatedly removed them from the final draft due to concerns that the move could strain ties between Washington and Beijing. All right, so a I bit of a more, break. I have more if you want to go. Uh, the bill also states, <laughs> Keith, before you get carried away, that exchange... Didn't wait for me to that, answer. This is, this, is, this is quite an interesting one. The bill states that exchanges under the program should include those focused on threat analysis, military doctrine, force planning, logistical support, intelligence collection and analysis, operational tactics, techniques and procedures, as well as humanitarian assistance and disaster relief. There we go. It's That's a- basically... That, I've just read you the whole of Section 1284 of the 27 NDAA that talks about Taiwan. We're all legal es- experts now on U.S. military policy. Fantastic. Uh, well, there was uh, another bit of military policy that came out this week that uh, has nothing to do with the U.S. Uh, we heard that conscription here in Taiwan is over, maybe, although maybe not. Yeah, I've been hearing that for the last eight years. More. Eight years. Mm-hmm. Nine years. It's been years. a long-standing been a, plan been a long-standing to phase plan. it out. Basically, it's been a long-standing plan here in Taiwan to make the military an all-volunteer armed forces. Now, the many, many years ago, too many years to remember, the government at the time said we want to make it an all-volunteer armed forces by 2016. That, of course, went bye-bye some years ago because, of course, recruitment levels were lower than expected, far lower than expected. Now, this week, Defence Minister Feng Shuquan came out and he told the legislative foreign and National Defence Committee that from 2018 there will be no more compulsory enlistment for male people of a certain age, hence the end of national service and conscription. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what, what he, we were hearing from Mr that, Fung. That's what, that's what the big 
bloke said anyway. Unfortunately, it's been reported that other Ministry of Defence officials have sort of gone, oh, hang on a minute, maybe you shouldn't have said that, because they've turned around and said, well, if the recruitment of an all-volunteer force reaches its goal, it will then not be necessary to draft mm-hmm. males born in 1993 and before into military service in 2018. So and- basically the Defence Minister said, it's going to be over, yay! Other officials said... If we hit our target. The door might not be locked quite yet. Mm-hmm. And, of course, what's interesting is these recent things we talked about in the first half have led to a drive and calls for more people to join the mm-hmm. military. Right. Well, just the uncertainty across the uh, Taiwan Strait yep. and fears thereof. Well, it's, I mean, basically what the those second military officials that you were talking about a second ago, their stance is basically what the policy has been the whole time. Once we get enough recruits signing up, then we'll end it. So that's that's not a change there at all. And they're also, one must remember, they're also going to cut the military size down to, I believe, 170,000. Mm-hmm. A total force of, that's the Army, Marine Corps, Air Force and Navy of a total force of 170,000 from its current 210, 215, 200,000 level. Mm. All right. So a bit of a mixed bag on the one hand. We have upped military ties with the U.S. On the other hand, we have conscription ending sort of kind of maybe in the next year or so. Uh, Ross, what do you read into the last week in military news? Oh, we, we haven't fixed one of the significant challenges here, which is the enthusiasm to volunteer. Or, and why is it lacking? And you know, some of the reasons are the, the military uh, as an institution has a, has a negative reputation for a number of reasons. Um, the pay, the compensation is also not considered attractive. And uh, there's identity issues, and, and, and uh, it seems there's still a lot of young people who are, are not convinced that the defending Taiwan by serving in the military is, is an obligation that they should undertake. And, and until these things are solved, we could keep having this discussion, and, and as Gavin has said, it's been going on for years, about when are the uh, authorities going to permanently end conscription and, and be able to shift to an all-volunteer force. We're obviously not there yet, and it, it's it's nice that the U.S. can call for – U.S. legislation could call for uh, higher-level military-to-military exchanges, and it would be great if uh, Taiwan – Taiwan's legislators will allot uh, larger budgets for military spending uh, and purchasing more advanced weaponry, which it looks likely the Trump administration will agree to sell to Taiwan – However, until we address this enthusiasm gap for serving in the military, we're, we're not going to answer this question. And, and frankly, it, it means Taiwan's defense ha- has significant risks. Of course, there's also the issue of the cutting of troops. The, the defense, but of course, the national defense budget. Previous governments for years have been saying it should be three percent of Taiwan's GDP. It's since dropped way below three percent of the Taiwan's GDP. And as I said in the first half of the show, an American official. Dep- uh, Department of St- Department of State official came out earlier this week and said that Taiwan should up its defence spending because obviously Donald Trump has said that Asian allies should do more to defend themselves. Well, that comes at one side. Then there's also been calls that how are you going to have an all-volunteer military if you've got less defence spending? Obviously, a lot of the expenses for the military go on wages and personnel it costs, basically. The way you could cut that down, of course, is to have an, a defence force, a, hundred, a, tr- a force of 100,000 men and women. 
Mm-hmm. That would make it a Taiwan defence force, like the New Zealand defence force, the Israeli defence force, etc., etc. Of course, if you cut the, the troop numbers down, you then come into another dilemma of you don't have enough troops to fight a possible conflict. And of course, would that sort of go against the possible calls by the incoming Republican administration in the US that, okay, but you're still not doing enough? Well, the, the answer clearly seems to be increased defense spending and not 3% of GDP. That, that's probably not enough. It, it probably needs to be several percent more than that, in fact. And uh, you, know, you mentioned Israel, and <clears throat> there are politicians in Taiwan that, this week who, who use the Israel analogy, uh, especially in, in the context of, well, what if Trump is just using Taiwan as a, as a pawn in a larger negotiation with China? Um, and, and the answer was, well, then we'll just have to be tougher on defense like Israel is. That can only be a reality if, one, more money is spent on defense. And 3% of GDP is not what I mean by more money. It probably needs to be 5 to 7%. And there's greater enthusiasm for serving in the military, which is something that does exist in Israel, where young people willingly do serve, both men and women. But they have, we don't have that here. But they have in Israel, of course, they have a defense force, a standing force around a hundred thousand. But they also have the volunteer force. Well, people in in, in Israel, as as in other countries that that face uh, existential threats on, on a regular basis, like like Singapore, uh, is also a, another good analogy. They they take their reservist service very seriously, um, both from an institutional perspective. So the programs are very well designed and, and provide intensive training when people do their reservist service for several weeks a year uh, up until their late 30s. Uh, but but also from an individual perspective, people aren't looking for ways to avoid this. It's just something that they know they have to do. And, and it comes with uh, being a citizen and, and defending the country. So even from that perspective, that, that that's also a significant issue in Taiwan. And when you talk to people who do get call back for reservist uh, training and you say, well, what did you do? Well, I sat in a lecture for a few hours and you know, played with my phone. So, well, did you get a refresher course and how to fire a weapon? And, and the answer often is no, they didn't. They're not refreshing those skills. So even maintaining a, a large people who are contactable for reservist duty uh, doesn't really solve Taiwan's defense challenges unless they're going to get significant training when they do do the reserve duty. Last question that I want to put to uh, on this issue, and uh, I, I think we'll have to run through this fairly quickly because we have a lot more to get to. But for those of us that want to see peace in the Taiwan Strait, is a large increase in spending on military and a much larger boosting of support for the military necessarily conducive to that? I mean, do we run the risk of seeing uh, a bit of an arms race between Taiwan and China? Well, I, I don't think that, uh, I mean, <laughs> I think China's going to boost its military no matter what they do, uh, no matter what Taiwan does. I don't think uh, it's going it, to, it, I don't think China's military is going to be responding in that sort of sense. But uh, I think China, Taiwan, I mean, obviously the money is one issue, but to get an all-volunteer force, I think they, they've got to solve the identity problem of the military here, which is in, it's in the weird situation of on paper, Taiwan's military is the only standing Chinese army in the world, meaning it, it is in, on paper the army of China, whereas the army that is across the strait is the armed wing of the Communist Party and is not actually the army of China. So Taiwan is being threatened by China, but it's not an actually Chinese army uh, on paper, but the army here is. It's a very weird 
and it's sort of hard if, if you join the military here. I'm Taiwanese, you join the military, and you're now a member of the Chinese Armed Forces to protect yourself against the armed wing of a political party across the strait. It's a very weird situation. So it's very hard to demand loyalty to that. Mm. All right. Well, on that note, I think we're going to have to move on to our next subject. Uh, And we're going to move on to gay marriage. Of course, supporters of gay marriage have staged their largest rally to date over the last weekend, with more than 200,000 people amassing on Ketagalan Boulevard, I believe it was on Saturday, Gavin. It was. The numbers ranged from 200 to 250,000. Mm-hmm. And like you said, Keith, they rallied in support of same-sex marriage. This was, of course, one of the largest rallies so far. Not, it, was, it wasn't a gay pride parade. It was a pro-same-sex marriage rally. Mm-hmm. Now, the government this week, or rather DPP, Legislative Caucus Whip Ke Jingming, came out and his, he said that he believes lawmakers will pass an amendment to the Civil Code legalising same-sex marriage next year. Mm-hmm. Oh, we've, talked, we've talked about this before and the and the next proposed version of the bill is set for legislative committee review on December the 26th and Kerr went on to say that he expects lawmakers to agree on allowing that to enter a third reading during the next legislative session next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, but <laughs> speculation still remains as to whether lawmakers will agree to allow same-sex marriage to be governed by an amendment to the civil code or they'll create its own special law governing same-sex partnerships. Mm. Now, gay rights groups say we don't want the, we don't want its own law governing same-sex partnerships. We want to be part of amendments to the civil code mm-hmm. fully legalizing same-sex marriage. Right. That was if you distill the main message of this rally. That was the main message. We don't want some separate law. We want uh, to be part of the main civil code. Uh, that, you know, covers everybody else in Taiwan. Uh, meanwhile, uh, there it wasn't just support uh, for gay marriage that we saw over the weekend. We also saw dozens of young supporters opposed to same-sex marriage amassing, I believe it was on Sunday, uh, who uh, they actually had a little bit of a sit-in in front of the legislative yuan. Uh, the argument that they've been making is that their views have been totally overlooked and they're actually receiving harassment from those uh, who are in favor of same-sex marriage. Basically, they feel that their views uh, are not permissible in Taiwan right now. So, uh, obviously, still a controversial issue, and it's going to be a long time before it gets resolved, at, at least until June. That's what they say. But this is, of course, the rally in Taipei we were talking about. And, of course, we have Donovan on the phone, and there's a big rally in Taichung this week. The same thing, basically. Yeah, it's actually a long-scheduled uh, pride parade. It's not a rally. Um, it's scheduled for this Saturday at People's Park at 1.30, and then it'll set off at about 2. But what's interesting is that, I, I, and the reason why I think that it's actually kind of a, a, a very important one uh, and that a lot of people will be watching, a lot of legislators probably will be watching it, because it, there was a period there where there was a series of setbacks for those who want, uh, wanted mar- marriage equality. Ke Jianming came out and uh, said that they were going for civil partnerships. Taing Wen basically washed her hands of the thing, saying that, oh, we need more voices, and, you know, individual legislators can vote their, their own conscience on this one. And her own justice ministry um, came out and said they also want a civil partnership law, not, not full uh, marriage equality. And, so was one, and then there was the uh, 200,000 strong, as the number bandied about, 100,000 100, in Taipei, uh, 50 in Kaohsiung, and over 40 in Taichung that rallied against 
uh, marriage equality. And so the last weekend, you know, heading into last weekend, the largest pro uh, activity, which would be the Pride Parade last uh, earlier this year, had only uh, achieved eighty thousand. So, I think a lot of eyes were on. You know, now when when they easily outnumbered in Taipei the hundred k that the uh, opponents raised, that sent a strong message about Taipei. But now the question is: is here in the heartland? You know, will there be a big turnout for the Pride Parade this year? Uh, again, it's not a rally, so there's a distinction there to be made. But uh, if the Pride Pride Parade gets a good turnout, then it'll suggest that it's not just Taipei that's in support of it. And do you have any sense? I mean, is there a cultural difference between these two major population centers? Would would folks in Taichung be somewhat more conservative than uh, folks in Taipei? Maybe a little bit, but you know, Taipei is kind of its own animal. Um, but I think that there's a pretty strong support here as well. And just in general, looking at this uh, issue, I, for for folks that don't live in Taichung, is there is there anything that we should know about activism in Taichung as opposed to the rest of the country, or, or what people are thinking about this issue as opposed to the rest of the country? Well, I think that it's it's actually you know not just geographically, but I think sort of in mentality, it's it's, it's between. Taipei and Kaohsiung. Kaohsiung is definitely more conservative. Uh, in the anti-rally, uh, Kaohsiung, the, the Kaohsiung rally, in spite of the cities being almost identical in population, uh, and probably Taichung has more people now uh, because of household registration. But the uh, the rally in Kaohsiung was was about twenty percent bigger uh, than the one here. The anti-rally. Um, and of course, Taipei having you know new Taipei and Taipei together, the big metropolis there has a lot bigger of a population. So I think in terms of sort of population, you know, tight, you know, as a as a function of the, I mean, as a percentage of the population, Taichung's anti came out pretty low compared to both type compared to Kaohsiung. So I think the anti forces here are are weaker than down south. Uh, but a bit stronger as as a you know as a percentage of the population than than the Taipei metropolitan area. Uh, I, I think what we're seeing um, by legislators such as Ke Jiaming and government officials, and I discussed this a few days ago actually with an official in the presidential office who's looking uh, at at marriage equality, is excuses not to proceed quickly, and one of the key items that is giving people some safety and to avoid moving quickly is this discussion of uh, do we just change the civil code or do we have a special law? And the the challenge that people say with the civil code is we can't just change the civil code because there, there are so many other laws that have uh, descriptions of parents and, and as man and woman and description of the married couple as man and woman and all sorts of rights that are, are provided for in these various laws. So we cannot just change the civil code in one sentence of the civil code to say, you know, marriage can, can be between two people. Um, and, and it's giving them cover to move uh, more slowly than I think a lot of people would had expected from a, a president who had in the past uh, indicated that she very much did support marriage equality. So there, and, there's and definitely you, a lot of disappointment. Do you think that the rationale behind that is because they're trying to avoid controversy? Uh, I, I personally think it is, yes. I, I, I think that uh, you could change the civil code and you can then, with time and resources, get 
to all the other laws that need to be changed and, and do that in an orderly fashion. But in the interim, uh, if you're a, a government official or a court or an adoption agency or a hospital is confronted with uh, interpreting a, a regulation or implementing a regulation that has not or a law that has yet to be changed and still says uh, man and woman, then logic dictates that if, if uh, uh, same-sex couples could already be married by virtue of change to the civil code, then you just interpret the other laws and regulations in accordance with that. Instead, we're getting uh, wrapped up and really delaying this process by saying, well, you know, there's X number of other laws that refer to a married couple as a man and woman, and we cannot proceed until we change all of those laws, or we'll do this special law, which obviously, as you mentioned, Keith, the uh, LG, LGBT community uh, re- rejects out of hand. And uh, I, I think uh, it, it's, it's a good argument. You know, it just, just it comes across as condescending to say, well, we'll, we'll, we'll spa- we're going to pass a special marriage law for you. Mm-hmm. Right, especially when one of the big points of uh, moving forward with gay marriage is to normalize it uh, within the culture. Uh, and so it's not very normalizing to have a special law. Oh. Yeah, separate but equal law, yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, uh, we have just a little bit more to cover before we round out the show, so we're going to have to move on to that. And uh, I know that all of the folks listening at home have in their head right now what they think the most searched term in Taiwan on Google is in 2016. So you have that in your head. Gavin, tell the people what it really is. Yes, Google this week, of course, came out and released its annual year-in search list for Taiwan for 2016. And the top of the list was, this is going to, Ross is going to love this because we all know that Ross downloaded this game and played this game and traipsed through Taipei's cities, catching his Pokemon because Pokemon Go topped the list for the most popular keyword search in Taiwan this year. There you go. So you're not alone, Ross. Many other people, mate, did it as well. Now, just in case anyone's still interested in this story, after the mention of Pokemon Go, the Rio 2016 Olympic Games and the US presidential election took second and third places respectively Mm. on the list for the most popular searches among people here in Taiwan. All right, so no surprises there. Giant world events. Uh, Of course, people are going to want to learn more about that. What I found kind of interesting is when they kind of isolated uh, searches for political leaders or ascendant political leaders. Uh, Tsai Ing-wen was not number one on the list. No, apparently, according to Google, US President-elect Donald Trump topped the rankings in this year's fastest rising searches, the fastest rising people, and the fastest rising political figures categories. And apparently Tsai Ing-wen was placed fifth and second in those categories. What? She can't even come in first in her own country. That's no good. No, I think people already know who she is, though. It's so. <laughs> not as much reason true. to search her. Yeah. Well, but yeah, but the, the counter to that is the the fact that uh, although it was in January 2016, what well, was an election year, and, and she took office in May, and has been formulating uh, new policies and, and across a range of issues. Uh, so it, I would say it's somewhat of a disappointment that she wasn't ranked higher in any of those search metrics. But of course, we don't know what people were searching about Donald Trump. Mm. Of course, there was a lot of sarcastic movies out there and shows and television hosts in America saying what some would call amusing things about Donald Trump, while others would say, you can't say this about Donald Trump. So we don't actually know the context of what they were searching about Donald Trump. Donald Trump's small hands. Was that on the list anywhere, Gavin? Did you find that one anywhere? (laughs) No, it's not, that wasn't did, did, on the list. Okay. That might, wasn't might, on the list. Might have been implied. Might have been implied. And the interesting one, uh, this is what this is the bit I found interesting, actually. Cho Zhe-yu, she's, of course, the Taiwanese singer, teenage girl. She's a member of the South Korean girl band twice. Mm-hmm. 
She actually ranks second in the fastest rising people category on the Google search here this year. Just behind now, Donald Trump. Now, this, this, now, Be careful, Gavin. She's not of legal age. Now, the China-based Taiwanese singer Huang An placed fourth on the same list. Now, the only thing Huang An has got going for him or did remotely related to Taiwan this year was to be really rude about Cho Ziyu. Mm. Of course, when he came out after she said her thing about the oh, Taiwan yeah, flag. yeah, he was the guy. He was the guy who yes, outed her. She, yeah. she, she, of course, had the ROC flag, mm-hmm. went to China. Yep, yep. Footage of her got her that. China jumped up and down. Her holding the ROC said, flag. She's yeah, a yeah. 17, 16-year-old girl. It's her flag. Just let her be. Sharp enough already. Huang An couldn't do this. Mm. He just had to open his mouth. And then, of course, he got sick several weeks later and had to come back to Taiwan for medical treatment. Whoa. It's not exactly so, a welcoming see, homecoming. That was interesting because the choices there were two extremes, you mm-hmm. could say. Well, part of the same story. Yeah, and, two uh, extremes, both the same story. Yeah. Now, if you're interested, the top five places in this year's most searched television programs and movies here in Taiwan list was topped by a South Korean television drama, mm. a Japanese animated film, a South Korean zombie horror movie. Mm-hmm. Oh, look, a number. F- oh, and the Taiwanese TV series KO1 Remember. Oh, yeah. There you go. And my, that was my it. My favorite. One Taiwan TV show got into the top five, basically. I mean, that's. <laughs> what does that, that say? Yeah. What does that say? Yeah. I think oh, I know what it says, but I'm not going to say it. Oh, it says we have some serious identity issues that need to be addressed. Uh, but, or it says people were too busy playing Pokemon. That's true, too. New form of. Uh, did, so, how many did you catch, Russ? Still looking. Still looking. All right. They're hard to find, they're pretty hard to find. All right. Well, uh, we're going to have to leave that story behind because we actually have one more thing to get to. Uh, We have our podcast bonus story that we don't want to leave out of the show for today. Uh, Gavin, what? Uh, why are those people screaming? Because they're on a slide and they're reaching a maximum speed of eighty-two kilometers an hour. Honestly, you don't you don't go that fast on a slide. You do on this slide because, of course, you're reaching a maximum speed of eighty-two kilometers an hour on a slide that was unveiled this Tuesday at the National Science and Technology Museum in Kaohsiung. Now, the slide, which stands twenty-seven meters in height and sixty-three meters in length, is apparently the tallest one in Asia and the third tallest in the world. And that was Ross playing Pokemon. <laughs> you just can't get away from that game, no, Ross. No, I know. You yeah, can't, can't get away from it. I was actually can't... bringing up the video of the his slide. Mother, uh-huh. His mother rang him earlier when he had to get rid of the poor woman on the phone because he was playing Pokemon. <laughs> Sorry, i got more important things going yeah. on, Mom. Anyway, the slide. The slide has been introduced by the museum not only to attract more visitors, but apparently to introduce basic scientific knowledge on such things as free-falling, centrifugal force, friction, Hmm. and centripetal force. You know what? Actually, the the, the slide is also a proof of uh, that famous, that very famous uh, physics formula... Whee! Equals MC squared. It's pretty impressive, actually. I mean, I recommend anyone listening to this podcast go to to, to a website... And look at it, because it, it actually looks pretty impressive, actually. It's not, it's not overly impressive and huge. It's just standing next to this museum, and it's, it's, it goes round and round. It's a spiral, spiral um, slide, 
Ross, it looks like you're rolling your eyes at this story. This well, 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 my my concern is your concern, given given the well, you know, I'm a lawyer, Keith. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, <laughs> given given the number of times on this program that uh, all of us, including Donovan, have discussed some kind of accident uh, or, and frankly, some kind of tragedy, I, I just hope they have proper safety precautions at this slide. Just, just shut up and go away and play Pokemon Go. You're just ruining it. Everybody's fun yet again. They're not going to put. They're not going to put any priceless works of art at the bottom of the slide. No, no, I'm pretty no, no, sure no. they're not going to do it's, that. It's a science museum. There's no, there's no priceless piece of work. G- Gavin, will you go on the slide? I'd love to go on the slide. No, no, no you say you love, No, will you go? Yeah, yeah. If I was it, in Gashung, I would go on the slide. All right, Keith, you'll arrange the budget. ICRT. <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll do we'll a live Keith, remote. We'll give Keith... Exactly. We'll give, we'll, we'll give Gavin a, a high-speed rail ticket. Mm-hmm. And, and he can be our slide correspondent. Yeah, because apparently I, I, I fit all the all the criteria because I'm taller than 130 centimeters. Just <laughs> I weigh less than 150 kilograms. I'm not pregnant. I don't have cardiovascular disease, and I don't drink. So there you go. There we go. Because you can't go on it. Inebriated? Inebriated. That, <laughs> well, where's the fun in that? They, they made oh, a big thing about that. Okay, that, now I'm not interested anymore. <laughs> Donovan, that, that killed the whole deal for you? Yeah, yeah Don, totally Donovan, I, I said those who weigh no more than 150 kilograms. <laughs> uh, Donovan, I will allow you to respond to that. <laughs> I don't weigh over 150 kilograms, no. Uh, to set the record straight. 149! <laughs> I fit all the, all the criteria, but I'm constantly drunk, so I guess I can't do it. <laughs> Ah, there's always there's always the fine print. No fair. <laughs> it's quite fun. The video, if you don't see the video, I haven't seen the video yet. The video is quite impressive. You start off going quite a great rate of knots. You pick up speed even more. But then when you slow down, you don't suddenly slow down. You you gradually slow down. Oh, okay. So they're not they're not like splattering you against a no, wall no, no, at the no, bottom. You don't, you, no, 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 no. You gradually slow down. And you gradually slow down quite well. It's, the there video we go. shows it. It's quite... See, Ross? Plenty safe. Ha- has Mayor Chun gone on the slide? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Why don't you ring her up and ask her? That video could very well go viral. But we're going to have to uh, end out the entire show right there. Uh, Slide to our own gradual stop for the show. Please do join us again next time. Time on this week broadcast every Friday evening during the 8 p.m. hour right here on ICRT FM 100, around about 8.15 in the evening. You can also find an extended version of the show online at the ICRT website, on iTunes, a couple other places as well. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I am Keith Manconi, joined by Gavin Phipps. Shush! I'm going to the slide now. Bye-bye. <laughs> it's the only sound that he's going to make from now on. Uh, Ross Feingold as well. Good night. And Donovan Smith from Taijong. Thank you, Donovan. Yeah, have a great weekend. Thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. Haha! Just kidding. We are sticking around, uh, you intrepid folk that uh, just can't get enough of our bloviations here at ICRT. Well, we've got you covered uh, with just a little bit more of those interviews from. Uh, David on and Chris Bodine. We're going to be speaking with David on first, of course, uh, just to uh, jog your memories. Uh, David on is a senior research fellow over at the Global Taiwan Institute in D.C. Uh, and we are going to continue this conversation. And one last confession. I have now officially run out of transition music for the show. So to bridge this gap, uh, we're just going to reuse that audio from the slide. Uh, so on that note, let's slide on in to this next interview. Also, I mean, while I have you, you're somebody who has a background in the State Department. 
Um, and uh, of course, I, I, I think it's fair to say that a, a lot of people that are like old policy hands, uh, th- those would be some of the people who were the most unnerved uh, by uh, the initial call and then uh, the, the statement last week. What is the feeling in Foggy Bottom right now? I mean, do you, do you have any sense that people are freaking out or, or is it perhaps a, a more measured tone than we're getting uh, filtered through the media? Um, I think people were quite surprised uh, back uh, the day after the election uh, when uh, Trump won by the, <laughs> by the Electoral College, even though Hillary Clinton won by the popular vote. Mm-hmm. So, so there's been a lot call, of surprises in Foggy Bottom. Uh, so, somewhat surprised. Yes. So there's already surprises going on just by the nature of how politics is proceeding toward the next administration. Um, and everybody just accepted it, acceptive of it because it's the U.S. Uh, democratic process. So in terms of how uh, the U.S. government sees it, it sees uh, these events in the past few weeks, uh, these various events like we discussed, uh, like One China, Trump's statement on One China, like what I mentioned about uh, China flying military aircraft around Taiwan for the first time, and also the new one about U.S. Congress National Defense Authorization Act 2017. So these all seem uh, very uh, like like big, you know, U.S. Taiwan on U.S. Taiwan relations. However, uh, people in Foggy Bottom are not looking at it just specifically U.S. Taiwan. They're looking at it U.S. Taiwan plus cross with China. They're looking at it in a broader Asia regional context. In a broader Asia regional context, there's North Korea's nuclear program. There's China's island building militarization in the South China Sea. There's, at this moment, political instability in South Korea. And that's not to mention globally with Middle East and uh, functional issues like cyber espionage. So in the big picture, it kind of like moderates uh, what we see, what, what's going on with the U.S. and Taiwan. However, between U.S. and Taiwan, uh, yes, these activities over the past few weeks have been very eventful. Yes. And some folks have said that Trump's comments are just being overinterpreted. And, well, I mean, to be fair, what, what would a show like us do if we weren't overinterpreting uh, Donald Trump's comments? But uh, <laughs> Exactly. But, uh, you know, you, you, you list some of those issues. Clearly, the implication in what he's saying when he says, I don't know that the U.S. Uh, necessarily needs to be committed to its one China policy. Look at China doing this, 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 and this. And he mentions some of the issues that you're bringing up there. Yeah. Um, is is it's it seems to be that he's saying you know the our position on one china policy uh could be ameliorated or could change based on china's uh conduct in these other areas is that a dangerous approach to take it's a businessman's approach to take so uh from the perspective of trump as a businessman uh, from that perspective it could be a move that he's he's taking to show that he's going to drive a tougher deal with china that there's more items on the table, there's more at stake. So in political science, uh, we call this issue linkage. Link uh, one aspect to trade or another aspect to security, a different aspect. So if, you're looking, if we're looking at Trump with his business background, uh, this fits, what he says fits very uh, much in, into his uh, background in business. Uh, but it's also a different approach from uh, myself and others who you know, at the State Department Foggy Bottom are used to dealing with more geopolitical security aspects and uh, less uh, used to taking this quid pro quo trade-off business approach. Um, so, but, but what he said does fit, in my opinion, uh, the perspective of Trump as businessmen. Hmm. Uh, last question, just rounding things out a little bit. I mean, going forward, trying to suss out what the dynamics of a Trump presidency are are, are going to be. Uh, I mean, I think, like you've said, a lot of people expect that because of the advisors that he has, his administration is going to take a more pro-Taiwan sort of stance. At the same time, 
like we were just talking about there uh, a second ago, some of his, his strategies uh, may be a, a, a rather large departure from what we've seen before. What do you expect that dynamic to look like going forward? Do you expect those advisors to basically prevail? Or are some of the stuff that we're less familiar with, the Trumpian approach to foreign policy, is that going to be the dominant uh, force that characterizes the foreign policy going forward? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. I'd separate that uh, with the people around him, his advisors. Um, I'd separate that with some of the career uh, military officers and diplomats that he's already uh, chosen to appoint to positions, such as General Flynn, uh, he's choosing for the head of National Security Council, and General Mattis that he's already mentioned he wants to choose for Secretary of Defense. So with these generals, especially in a position of Secretary of Defense, which has previously been civilians like Panetta or Gates or Rumsfeld, uh, it shows that his cabinet will be more hawkish, uh, likely more hawkish towards the People's Republic of China, which could be in favor uh, of U.S.-Taiwan relations, could improve U.S.-Taiwan there. However, if you look at the people right beside him, himself, like I mentioned, having a businessman's perspective, but also his vice president, Mike Pence. So Mike Pence is coming from a governor's perspective. So from a governor's perspective, it's about um, helping his constituency, creating jobs, economic growth, and less experience with this type of national security, national security or geostrategic decision making. That's the basis of our conversation right now. When we're talking about one China, when we're talking about flights, uh, China's flights around Taiwan, when we're talking about National Defense Authorization Act, all these things that's been happening in the past few weeks, it's quite in the realm of a diplomat or a cabinet-level official, and less so uh, from a person that, who spent their life doing business uh, or uh, as governors. So he is going to have to, the, the executive is going to have to lean uh, more on his advisors. And so far, uh, by appointing generals, it appears his advisors will be more hawkish toward China. Moving on to uh, the last little scrap of interview that we're going to throw at you for this week, and we continue our conversation here uh, with Chris Bodine, once again, of AP over in Beijing. Uh, And the question that I really wanted to throw at him was, you know, a lot of people are talking about this idea of a grand bargain, the notion that perhaps uh, Donald Trump would take some kind of a deal that gives the U.S. benefits in trade or in some other area, uh, and in exchange... Uh, modify its support for Taiwan in some way, modify its diplomatic stance towards Taiwan in some way, perhaps favorable to China, unfavorable to Taiwan. This is an idea that some people have put out there. Uh, It seemed to gain some degree of credence when, in his comments during that Fox interview, uh, Donald Trump made a connection between, you know, China's stance on various policy issues and the U.S.'s stance towards Taiwan. So... That idea is swirling around in the ether. I wanted to put it to Chris Bodine, whether or not he thought this was something that was in the realm of possibility, just given the realities of uh, the U.S.'s policy to China and China's uh, stance on everything. So this is what he had to say about that. I, I don't see a lot of room for, for, for like I said, a, like a drastic change in, in U.S. policy. I mean, this has been well established, and the Republican foreign policy establishment around Trump uh, will definitely be urging him to, you know, not rock the boat significantly. Um, at the same time, they do seem to be looking for uh, for 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 advantage if if they can. Um, 
I don't know, it, it, it's a little bit opportunistic. Maybe he feels particularly here during the transition before he actually takes office and has to, you know, get down to uh, brass tacks that he can actually uh, uh, move that situation a little bit and um, put China on the back foot and, uh, and, and talk about significant changes to, to policy. But I think he's just holding it out there. I, I, I really might, at my core, I really feel that uh, things would probably go back more or less to where they were after uh, January 20th. But there may be a little bit more room, uh, a little more wiggle room there. I mean, the, the, the phone conversation with Tsai was interesting because she seems to be a very different character from a lot of those, those people that may be uh, advising Trump and working in the uh, Republicans' uh, foreign policy establishment. I mean, she's a liberal Democrat and doesn't really come from that sort of uh, cold warrior sort of background. Um, and yet, I, I think both sides right now, both the U.S. and, and Taiwan, are trying to, to uh, play this out to, to gain some additional uh, room to maneuver so that uh, when the, uh, you know, the usual diplomatic uh, uh, exchanges resume after, after the inauguration, that they'll be able to, uh, to operate more independently. So that, that is definitely out there. It's uh, kind of interesting what you're saying there about Tsai and uh, her her character. Um, do you think that this move by Tsai, this willingness to take this somewhat risky move of making a call that uh, you know everybody could have seen going into it was going to rock the boat to some extent? Do you think that that's changed China's thinking on Tsai Ing-wen herself in any way? If if anything, they may be required at this stage to take Tsai a little more seriously than they had before. You know, they they broke off exchanges with her, and they've just uh, repeated ad nauseum this uh, insistence that she has to endorse the the, the 92 consensus and uh, and the and the one China uh, what is it not the the, uh, the principle of the one China not the not the policy but the principle. Um, so, but we don't really we haven't seen anything in the media or, or really statements coming from. Uh, the, the government back scholars and, and, the, and the like to say that they're going to uh, change the way they approach her uh, and her administration. Um, there's still a lot of emphasis on um, cutting back on, on Chinese tourists traveling to Taiwan and uh, the placing of the onus firmly on, on Tsai Ing-wen for uh, causing this disruption in, in what had been sort of a, a warming trend in ties. Uh, particularly what, what we saw last year when uh, Ma Inge went to Singapore and met with uh, Xi Jinping. I do think that they are maybe taking her a little more seriously and, and figuring that this is going to be uh, a wrinkle in the relationship and that they, they might have to uh, do something. It could be, it could be uh, like we said, getting, getting uh, cracking down on Taiwan's uh, international uh, breathing space. It could be trying to reach out to, to people around Tsai. But uh, yeah, we, we just haven't seen anything quite yet. Um, we may get a little more guidance uh, toward the very end of the year. The, uh, we, we look at the Taiwan Affairs Office in, in, uh, in China, which holds uh, bi-weekly news conferences. And we look for, for changes in their statements. And I hadn't seen anything particularly different on Wednesday, but that could, that could still change. And then um, the Defense Ministry also holds news conferences and they re- regularly uh, speak out about... Uh, Taiwan, U.S., China relations. So those will be uh, indicators as to whether there will be any uh, any change in their approach.
Hmm. Uh, and the last question that I want to toss at you is just to maybe fill in some of the gaps in our understanding of where this Taiwan, U.S., China three-way relationship is going. Just from your view in Beijing, is, is there anything about uh, the thinking over there or the realities over there um, that you wish that commentators in other parts of the world could really internalize and really understand uh, as they're trying to understand uh, where this is all headed? Well, I think people really need to understand the rigidity of, of China's positions on, on, on Taiwan. And it's not just the government. It's, it's ordinary people around here. I mean, they are very, very firmly committed to, to this idea of one China, this idea that, that Taiwan, no matter what happens there, uh, it, it, it remains Chinese territory and that there will eventually, eventually be some kind of accommodation, unification under, under some in, in some form or, or, or another. And uh, that, ex- that, that extends to, you know, hostility towards Tsai herself and the, and the DPP and, and that whole idea of, uh, you know, Taiwan nativism or Taiwan independence, whatever you want to call it. Um, so this is, this is China's red line. I mean, this is their bedrock position. I mean, they're, and they're, there seems to be no altering of that. I mean, you hear it from school kids, you hear it from people in the government, you hear it from uh, you know, Chinese who otherwise are very sophisticated in their thinking and have been abroad and everything like that. But uh, there, there's just very little uh, imagination about a, a different uh, kind of relationship. And, and uh, I don't see that changing anytime soon. And, and uh, whoever, you know, makes the policy in Washington and, and Taipei and all have to have to realize that, that they're going to be up against uh Essentially, up against one point, you know, two seven million Chinese people, and and uh, that's uh, that's just kind of a reality they're going to have to deal with. All right. On that note, we're going to round things out. Uh, we've been speaking to Chris Bodine in Beijing. Chris, thanks so much for speaking with us today. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. All right, and we have finally exhausted our full vault of material for coverage of this week. Thank you so very much for sticking around. If you did stick around, I hope you got something out of it. I I certainly feel like I did. A lot of interesting stuff that we brought up on the show for this week. Hopefully next week we can keep things to a somewhat more reasonable time and I don't make the same mistake of overbooking the show. Once again, I got to fire my producer, uh, who is uh, unfortunately me. In any event, I do want to thank you for sticking around for ICRT and Taiwan This Week. I am Keith Menconi. See you next time. Oh. <laughs> 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 <laughs>